Hello and welcome to the 10th series of the DNVGL Talks Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Matthias Steck. In this series, we take a fresh look at the role businesses play in lowering the world's carbon emissions and how they can work with governments, policymakers and other key decision makers to transition faster to a clean energy future. In this episode, we look at the role of infrastructure in accelerating the energy transition. I speak to Antonello Camisecra, Head of Global Infrastructure and Networks at Enel. He tells me about his role as a renewable energy pioneer when he started out at Enel over 20 years ago and how this experience informs his approach to his new focus on grid digitization. He argues that for every dollar spent on energy generation, the same or more must be spent on infrastructure in order to meet the demand created by widespread electrification. We hope you enjoy the episode. Antonello, you have just assumed the new role as head of global infrastructure and networks. So congratulations for this. Before we delve into the topic, I would like you to tell us a bit about your past, where you are coming from and your main priorities for your new role. Yes, with pleasure. Uh, I have more than 20 years of experience in the electricity business. Uh, all of them uh, within Enel, uh, which was not my only job, but basically, so so many times, it's basically a big part of my life. Uh, you said, right, I am a generation guy so far. Most of my career was spent uh, in generation and almost all of it in uh, renewables. So I am I can be considered a sort of pioneer. I was very young when I moved into the renewables that at that time were very marginal part of our generation business and I mean it was almost not visible a part of, uh, of hydros of course uh, in the energy metrics of any country so I was a sort of explorer within Enel I worked in many countries I went to South America in particular to develop our presence there and um, I so I saw the, the journey of renewables from being uh, just exiting the lab in certain technology in particular uh, to becoming uh, significant and predominant like they are today and the hope for the decarbonization effort that we have in front of us. So I'm, let's say, approaching this all new part of my career uh, with this spirit, maintaining, let's say, the vision of a decarbonizing, continuously and fastly decarbonizing world uh, with the help of technology that luckily today is available at the right cost uh, and with the help of the digitalization that will foster and accelerate the speed of implementation of this, uh, let's say, switch uh, from uh, old technologies to new technologies. And of course, the main part will be, let's say, it's, it's driven by the implementation of renewable projects because where we avoid the emissions of CO2 in the atmosphere, but without the uh, equivalent effort in uh, uh, the expansion of the grids in the modern economies and the creation of the grids in uh, developing economies, there will be no uh, switch possible, there will be no renewable penetrations possible at the levels where we must be to maintain uh, or limit, let's say, the, the global warming within the 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees, uh, which are, is an extraordinary effort that will drive resources in terms of technology, of capitals, of brains, and of passions, likewise in renewables, also in the grid infrastructure business. So from this point of view, I will not switch too much my mood. 
I'm still working to save the world, if I may say. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned uh, a couple of very interesting things just now, which we also want to dive deeper into uh, in the flow of this conversation. But first, I would like to take a benefit of your great experience you have in global energy generation projects and now from the delivery side. And I mean, the vision you created as a young engineer to decarbonize the world is very current today. So you had the, the pleasure to, so to say, to, to always follow your own vision since you started. That's great. And so I would really like to know from you, if you look at the current opportunities for renewables globally, where do you see the greatest opportunities for renewables? Well, I think uh, who is going to work into renewables today will face uh, the next 10, 15 years of extraordinary Uh, expansion, so full of opportunities to enlarge the business uh, in all possible aspects and in all possible geographies. There will be no countries in the in this world that will stay away from a massive implementation of renewable projects, uh, including the heaviest polluters of today's economy, like uh, India and China in particular. Actually, China already announced a significant shift towards renewables in the in the very recent five years. Uh, planning. So I think who is starting today or who is keeping working renewables today uh, actually have to have clear as to have clear in mind that the next 10 years will be very tough because the speed of, of, of uh, development must change of, of, with a factor of two or three if you want to achieve the targets that we have uh, commonly set for the globe. Let's remember that any gram of CO2 that is avoided into atmosphere is not done for Italy or Germany or or US is done for the globe because it's a cumulative problem. So from wherever point of the world and from wherever kind of technology um, you will be working with renewables, you will be contributing probably to the most fascinating, difficult, but life-saving challenge that is today on the political agenda. There are so in also attached to these uh, incredible economical opportunities, both for mature countries We, who will export their competencies, their technologies, uh, their capital sometimes, but also for developing economies uh, where there is an opportunity finally to close the gap, uh, the historical gap in the access to electricity that it's still, uh, let's say, uh, reducing, slowing down dramatically the speed of growth of those countries. It's, it's, lack of electricity is considered the hurdle number one in in many countries, in particular in Africa. So all this together represent a fantastic opportunity, but also an incredible challenge. There will be consequence of this incredible growth of renewable. Certain aspects, think about the geopolitics of energy will completely change in 10 years. So energetic flows were uh, stably in the last 50 years uh, flowing from... Uh, from few areas of the world towards few other areas of the world where those resources were consumed, mostly. And all these will change completely. So the scarce resources will become others, probably uh, the rare earth or certain specific materials or minerals. So many implications of this big evolution will emerge in the, in the next years. But overall, the overarching message from my side is that it's an incredible opportunity, especially, especially valuable uh, as a booster of the economy after the dramatic pandemic we're still living. So that's an, a need 
to preserve the stability of the uh, global ecosystem at the same time one of the biggest areas, let's say, um, sectors in which we can try to inject capitals and create jobs to exit from the pandemic, maybe even better compared to where, how we, we enter into it. So I really like the geopolitical component you just mentioned, and I want to come back to this. But before that, you mentioned that we need to speed up well, by the factor of two to three in the build out of renewables to reach our climate targets. What implications does that have on what we need to do about the infrastructure to make that possible? Is that a limiting factor? Could be potentially a limiting factor if we don't understand that the two things must go hand in hand as they've been going in, uh, in Europe, at least in the past decade. So for any dollar invested or euro invested in uh, renewable generation, there must be another euro or more invested in, uh, in grids. Why more than one euro is easy to be understood because we need to implement massive quantity of uh, renewable generation, but we also need to electrify the consumptions because if the decarbonized electricity is the main solution to not uh, pollute anymore, then we need to consume that electricity in many more sectors than of today. So that means we have to drive electric cars, we have to heat our houses with electricity, and to the extent it's possible and economical viable, we have to introduce electricity in industrial processes much more than before. So we need to work in, with the grid from the input and the output. So we are in between the two phases of the electrification, the decarbonization and the electrification. That's why I think that we have to invest maybe even more than just in generation, because we need to create connection opportunities, connection points for all these uh, additional consumptions that will emerge, because electricity will be the simplest and easiest way for the consumers to become cleaner. So if we come back to what you said about the infrastructure, what needs to be invested, you also mentioned the change in consumption because some sectors are getting electrified, like heat and transport. And if we then look into the differences in transitioning in developed countries versus transitioning in developing countries, where do you see here the main differences and chances? Is there maybe even a chance that the developing countries can move faster because they don't have to overcome established infrastructure? To be honest, I don't know. And I explain you why I don't know. Because uh, in the development countries, there are two phenomena that are, is, are happening, visibly happening today. One is the population growth, which is basically not happening so much in uh, modern economies, in modern countries. And, um, and the second aspect is that the access to electricity. So in many countries, there is still a too fragile access to electricity or no access whatsoever to electricity, which imply an um, infrastructure effort that is completely different from the one that is um, forecasted for, uh, for um, let's say, the, the advanced economies. The, the additional to that, there is also another phenomenon the way that we lived already many centuries ago and, and, and lately after the Second World War, which is the urbanization. So in many areas of Africa and of South America, still there is a 
visible phenomenon of urbanization, we will reach almost 70% of the urban population by 2050. This phenomenon is very important to be understood if we want to understand what will be the challenges of serving people with electricity in the places where they live. So I think the two dynamics will be completely different. In many parts of the world, still electricity will be the access to it, will represent the first access to it, the possibility to study, to get education, to kick, to cook cleaner uh, than they are doing today, or in many other frugal initial uses. We are talking of almost a billion people, not few of them. Almost a billion people are living in the next 10 years this kind of problem. And with, there is another billion of people, luckily in a better situation, which will experience initial form of electrification, which means probably will use electricity for more uses, but still far, quite far away from the use of an electric car. And then there will be a, a large part of the, popula- of the global population which will transition, will transition quickly, I think, into a full electrified kind of consumer. So they will use electricity for their own direct consumptions, but also they will represent the force to induce big brands to use electricity more because it's a a renewable electricity, a decarbonized electricity into the processes with which they will manufacture the goods and services those clients are going to buy. So there will be the sort of activators of electrification. So the, the, the dynamic, I think, it will be a dual. Uh, we will see certain phenomenon happening in the developing world and certain other uh, phenomenon happening in the advanced world. Antonello, I want to come back to this great comment you made about shifting uh, geopolitical centers, maybe. Um, one way of looking at a shifting center was to look at the economic growth or strengths, and we had the center of gravity moving from the west somehow to the east. If we look at uh, where renewables could move that center, it could go to the south, or it could actually especially go to regions which are not so well developed today. Do you think there is a real chance that's going to happen? Frankly speaking, no, and I hope that it will not happen. Because if we think that the switch, the move of the center of gravity toward the south is meant in the, let's say, old-fashioned way of exploiting resources being in a certain area of the world to serve the modern economy that will need more and more and more and more electricity, that's a vision that we don't share. That's a new form of electro-colonialism that absolutely we don't share. Uh, when I think of geopolitical reshuffling, I mean that many countries, poor or not abundant in resources, for the simple fact they're moving to renewables, will have their own local domestic resources to be consumed for the local domestic needs, which is a form of a liberty unexploited before. Right, so it's clear different nations will need different approaches to the transition to find their right place. So, and that gives me an opportunity maybe to narrow our discussion down a bit. Enel is also active in many different markets. How do you think the local policymakers can drive change? And what is Enel doing 
to support these countries in introducing that change. In this regard, the role of the policymakers and the regulator in particular is extraordinarily important because the effective regulation and also visionary or courageous regulation can represent uh, an important value for the final consumer because can attract modernization project or the implementation of advanced technology that create more resilient grades, more resilient infrastructure, or uh, can uh, more efficient infrastructure that ultimately convert themselves into value for consumers, for the final client. So the role of the regulator probably will change also from this point of view in the future. They will have to be, rather than, let's say, watching uh, and observing the innovation and then accepting them into the into the rules, uh, actually stimulating the innovation to accelerate the speed of implementation because this will serve for the purpose of having better grids and, and uh, more efficient grids. Typically, the regulator in, has been, this is generally valid uh, wherever we are, I mean, in, in Europe, uh, like in South America, but I think it's valid also in the US and in other countries, have been a little bit passing on it. So waiting for the the, 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 the companies, the distributors to propose, then observe, understand, certify, and then apply. And I think this must change. I mean, the, the, co the cooperation with the regulators must uh, create a more dynamic understanding of the possibility of the technologies and implement them maybe on a pilot scale before, but then with courage, uh, let's roll it out fastly possible more, uh, in order to create the benefits for the, for the consumers. Uh, and especially when we will have, uh, the, we will be facing the, the scarcity of capitals or let's say the, the, the need for huge investments in the grids, uh, understanding what is the right solution either to, um, let's say, uh, implement a new line or reinforce a line or just manage the demand with software that can control the flows will be crucial to have the right the right burden on consumers coming from the investments on the grid. So the efficiency in the capital allocation can pass through also through the right interaction with the regulator. Antonello, I want to take the chance to also talk about digitalization. We have talked a little bit about the importance of technology advancements, but Digitalization as is, is also a very important pillar of our transition. And Enel Italy, you have the first fully digitalized energy grid. First of all, I'd like to know what that exactly is and how does it help you in the transition? Yes, we are very proud of being one of the most advanced, probably the first fully digitized grid in the world. And this is basically complied, uh, I would say, three things. The first, the most iconic thing is the digital meter. Uh, everything started with having our customers serve through a digital meter that now is uh, reaching the third generation. The second is, a, a, let's say, a digital system that can let the information flow from the uh, meter all, back, all the way back to our servers in order to collect data uh, in real time in order to understand the level of uh, consumptions, the level of service and uh, possible information about the consumers, but also about any other piece of equipment in the chain from uh, our centers to the uh, point of delivery. Uh, so we have digital tools, not only the digital meter, we have digital tools in, uh, in the primary and secondary 
um, substations so that we can uh, in real time monitor uh, the flows, monitor the conditions and act on, uh, on them. So the second piece in order to be able to act is a very high level of automation. So you have digital tools, but also initial level of robotization. So we need to actuate, we need to operate on our piece of equipment from distance. And so we need to have a, a telecontrolled, telecommanded uh, switch, switchboard, switch gears, and any, um, any other piece of equipment must be remotely operated to the maximum extent is possible. The third piece, a digital brain that can do all this work in a very fast way. We call it self-healing. So if we have a problem in a, in a point of the grid, the, the old-fashioned was to trial and error. So go and try to check where the problem is and then go and send some people to, to act. Now, with all this digital equipment spread across the entire network, automatically the grid tell us where there is a problem. So we, we have not to ask the grid. Is the grid telling us, guys, we have a problem here? And actually, while the grid is telling us, the grid is also self-performing the reconfiguration of the grid in order to solve the problem. Then, of course, very quickly, we need to send people to fix the problem. If it's a physical problem or just do a reset if it's a digital problem. So it started with the digital meter. Then we are going up in the chain, we have digitized, and we are still digitizing the substations, primary, secondary, medium of voltage substations. And now we are introducing uh, more advanced technology in all our terminals, in all our, let's say, um, uh, areas of the grid, lo locating in the peripheral areas of our grids an immense computing power, because this will serve for the grids of the future, where the grids will not only deliver power, but will also feel what's happening in the in the environment, collecting so many other data that will uh, create a, a really a difference with the way the man, the grid was managed in the past. So it's not an easy journey because, of course, because if you have only the digital world completely separated by the physical reality, you don't know what to do with it. So the interaction between the two things is probably the most challenging part of our view and, of course, become even more complex when you move in emerging countries where the fragility of the network is even more, uh, let's say, evident. But we have accumulated almost 20 years of experience. We started at the beginning of the first decade of, of the third millennium. Now we, have a, we are at the third generation with the digital meter and actually... We are starting thinking the fourth and the fourth generation of the digital media we have, will be capable to do extraordinary things that we don't even know today. So that's the way we are approaching the new wave. The mid must be like uh, the introduction of the iPhone, just to make an example. So something complete or the iPad, something completely different that is so new that we don't even uh, desire it before because we could not think of it uh, before seeing for the first time. Antonello, you gave us already great food for thought and so many great ideas how to transition. But I have one kind of summarizing question for you at the end. So in, in your opinion, what are the biggest changes that we need to make to transition faster together? 
Hey, that's a, that's a very difficult question. I think when it's about technology, when it's about the uh, uh, resilience of the grids, it's quite straightforward. But the challenge, as you said, it's the, the key word is together. It means that we have to understand that the grids is a lifeline for the modern economy. So we need to be ready to habilitate the, uh, the vision of an electrified, decarbonized economy which means we will have many actors playing on our grids, like prosumers, consumers, uh, distributed uh, energy generators, uh, electrolyzers, uh, and many other um, technologies using the grids to deliver their product in a decarbonized way. So I think uh, that our role will change. I think uh, the current setup of the electricity sector is still uh, basing on the view of the past century, where you had few places where the power stations, where electricity was generated, many uh, or few places where electricity was consumed, the, the cities, the uh, industrial areas, transportation uh, network, and then the distribution network. So it was from top to bottom. The future will be completely different, and the distributors will be much, much closer to this new ecosystem. We will be much closer to the dis distributed generation. We will be much closer to our electrified, uh, more electrified consumers. We will be much closer to sensing what is happening on the grid. So the role of the distributor is going to change. We will become system operator, resources that will be more available with batteries, with uh, in, uh, demand response. So our role must change and technology is not enough. We have to understand this role, propose the role to the policymakers and convince them that it's more efficient and more robust if this role is undertaken by the distribution system operator. That's easy to say, not even easy to say, so imagine how difficult it is to do. <laughs> but I think this is the key of creating an efficient and safe uh, electric world that is what we want uh, to create in the next 10 years. Antonello, thank you very much for these deep insights and this great food for thought. I even learned a new word, electrocolonialism. So great you had time for us and I will think a lot about these many different angles you gave us on the topic. Thank you, Matthias, for inviting me. It was a pleasure and I hope to see you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode. It was a fascinating conversation about the importance of infrastructure in accelerating the energy transition. In next week's episode of DNVGL Talks Energy, we speak with Christina Sorensen from Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners. She'll tell us about the company's pioneering role in offshore wind development and share her thoughts on why greater trust and collaboration is required between stakeholders in order to facilitate change. To hear more podcasts in the series, please visit dnvgl.com slash talksenergy.